Classic English Literature Podcast, where rhyme gets its reason. Oh, I like that. Rhyme gets its reason. I'm going to make that my tagline. The Classic English Literature Podcast, where rhyme gets its reason. TM! For lucky episode 13, we bid farewell to Geoffrey Chaucer and his Merry Pilgrims and leave them on their road to Canterbury while we strike out for the Northwest Midlands say, Cheshire or Lancashire, for what many consider the greatest medieval romance ever, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. Like the Anglo-Saxon Beowulf, Gawain and the Green Knight survives in only one manuscript and, again like its epic antecedent, was part of the collection of manuscripts belonging to Sir Robert Cotton that survived the fire of the rather portentously named Ashburnham House. Usually called the Gowan Poet, the author is also known as the Pearl Poet, for included in that manuscript are texts called Patience, Cleanness, and Pearl, this last being one of the great medieval dream vision poems, and one I still kind of regret not covering in our dream vision episode. Maybe someday, if the podcast succeeds and we return to the Middle Ages for a season two. Fingers crossed. Today we're back in the realm of the King Arthur legends, but this time, rather than borrowing from French or Welsh traditions, the story of Gawain and the Green Knight is as British as Sunday roast and mushy peas, real local fare. Stick to your ribs poetry. Now we get some of that local flavor right in the language itself. As I say, we're somewhere in the Northwest Midlands in the late 14th century, far away from the English of Chaucer's London. The dialect here is one of a provincial court, somewhat more conservative in its sound than the London dialect that was exerting the greatest influence. You may recall that after the Norman conquest of 1066 disrupted the West Saxon dialect of Old English, which was beginning to become the standard, that lack of a linguistic center allowed English of the Middle Ages to atomize along lines of local pronunciation. So, for instance, different dialects of Middle English used different verb endings. Where Chaucer would have used the verb loveth, as in hey loveth may, the writer in the north would use loves, and the one from the Midlands would have used lovin'. The ing ending too, as in loving, only gradually appeared in the Midlands dialect, which use lovinde. Our modern pronouns, they, them, and their, also come from the northern part of the country where the Norse influence was stronger, beating out the southern here and hem. Of course, the biggest difference in dialects and accents comes from the vowels, because vowel sounds easily float around in the middle of the mouth. So southern versions used an O sound for words like stone and home, but elsewhere they sounded more like an A sound, stain and hame, kind of Scottish sounding, which shouldn't surprise. Here's the opening of Gowan and the Green Knight in its original dialect. Now, uh, Full disclosure here, I struggle with this dialect. I can read Chaucer pretty well, but this one kind of throws me so. Accept it not for its imperfections, but for its heart. 
Sidden the sedge, and the salt was sestered at Troia. The bulk brittened and brent to Brondus and Ascus the tulk that the tramus of Tresent they rocked. Was treed for his treachery the truest on earth, it was Aeneas the Athel and his Kia Kinda that seethen the Prakid provinces and Petronus become well noch of Arthur in the western Elis. Fro riches Romulus to Roma riches him sweeter with great bobbinsa that Berka he begus upon first, and Naven as hit his Avna home as hit now hot Tikius to Tuscan, and Teldus Begunus, Langeberde in Lombardia liftus up Homus, and fair Ureth the French flood Felix Brutus of Moni Boncus full broad a Breton he set us with Wiener. Where were and rake and wonder, besee this hot wand Petherina, and oft both a blisa and blunder full scatter ha scuffed sinner. Uh, near enough. The opening stanza establishes a heroic history to the current tale, tying the Arthurian court of the poem all the way back to the Trojan War and the founding of Britain. We'll be doing our analysis in the poem in a modern translation, never fear. But first, let's do a super summary of the poem before we start unpacking its form, structure, themes, and moral dilemmas. So, it's Christmas, and the whole of Arthur's court is celebrating. They gather in the Great Hall for the feast, but... Arthur has a tradition, and he will not eat until he's heard of some extraordinary adventure. Right on cue, in storms a massive knight on a massive horse carrying a massive axe. And he's green. Very green. No, not inexperienced or envious or nauseous, like actually colored green. Skin, hair, garments, horse, bridle, teeth, presumably. Green, 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 green. He challenges Arthur's court to a test of their vaunted chivalry. And he feigns, not knowing which is Arthur, sick burn, then taunts the knights as feeble, beardless children, and asks if any be so bold in his blood, his brain so wild as stoutly to strike one stroke for another. So, is anyone here man enough to hit me, knowing that I'll hit him back? If so, you can have this fabulous green axe. The assembly is cowed. So Arthur steps up to defend the honor of his court, but then Gawain, Arthur's nephew, accepts the challenge. He takes the axe, and with a mighty stroke lops off the head of the Green Knight. The Green Knight, somehow, manages to find his severed head, picks it up, holds it out, and says, You'll You'll get get your your stroke stroke a year and a a day day from from now at the the Green Green Chapel. Chapel. Don't Don't be late. Arthur says, That was extraordinary. Let's eat. Time passes, and Gowan sets out to keep his appointment at the Green Chapel. He gets lost in the winter snows and comes upon a startling castle in a summery land. The castle, we find, is called Haute Desert, and its master is Bursalac. Gowan appeals to the Lord's hospitality and stays there until the day of his appointment comes. During that time, the lord of the castle proposes a game. I'll go hunting, and I'll give you whatever I catch. You stay here and relax, 
but give me whatever you win during the day. Gawain agrees, but the lady of the castle has decided she likes the cut of Gawain's jib, so she tries to seduce him. Nobly, he resists, and she must be satisfied with merely a kiss. The lord returns from hunting the deer, gives the venison to Gowan, and Gowan kisses him. Fair enough. Day two. The lady tries again to breach Gowan's defenses, but he stands by his chastity and only gets kissed. The lord returns with a dead boar, and Gowan kisses him. Fair enough. Day three. Undeterred, the lady once again tries to tempt Gowan, but he finally defeats her. She kisses him three times and gives him a green girdle, like like a sash, like a belt, not a tummy control garment. It's magical and it will protect him from harm. Just the thing I need, he thinks, considering his upcoming rendezvous with the Green Knight and feeling a twinge in his neck. Bursalak comes home, having killed a fox for Gowan. Gowan kisses him three times, but doesn't turn over the girdle. <coughs> Bad form, Gowan. Day four. Gowan makes his way to the Green Chapel, sees the Green Knight sharpening his axe, and submits to the test. The Green Knight check swings twice, and each time Gowan flinches. Cowardice. At the third stroke, Gowan holds steady, and the knight, pulling his punch, barely nicks Gowan's neck, drawing a trickle of blood. Gowan gets a lesson in humility, and from then on, Arthur's knights wear a green sash as a reminder. Turns out, the green knight and Bursalak are the same guy, and the whole episode was orchestrated by Morgan Le Fay to test the chivalry of Arthur's famous knights. Now, the Gowan poet is real hipster. Like William Langland in Piers Plowman, the Gowan poet is part of the alliterative revival, bringing back the alliterated long line from Anglo-Saxon poetry after it languished when those trendy French styles became popular with the kids. So we have a traditional conservative feel to the verse already, especially emphasized by the notable provincial pronunciation. The long line, with its repetitive sounds, gives a more free, rambling feel to the poem, as if the language is unbound. Now, it's too much to say that the verse feels rough or unhewn, as some have said, comparing the Gowan poet unfavorably to Chaucer. I think the pseudo-archaism of the style fits really well with this romance. And the Gowan poet does give us a taste of more sophisticated versifying, After a stanza, sometimes called a stock, of any number of alliterated lines, the poem drops a single two-syllable line, called a bob, followed by a quatrain of three-beat lines which alternately rhyme. The effect of this bob-and-wheel structure allows the action to sprawl across the stock, capacious and comprehensive, and then jerks it up short with the bob, and then marches it to an orderly and stately conclusion in the wheel, only to sprawl once again in the next stanza. It's quite a musical effect that would have been much appreciated by the original audience. And I like the expansive and contractive dynamic here. It feels to me like propulsion, 
like drawing back and flinging forward like waves. It also, of course, calls one's attention especially to the contents of the wheel. So the poet frequently puts items of particular significance or effect into that little quatrain. There are other quite intricate architectural elements to this poem. It is composed in four sections called fits, though I have seen some translations that call them passuses, like the sections in Piers Plowman. And these fits mirror all the fours that dominated medieval thinking, the four seasons, the four elements, the four bodily humors. We see frequent use in the poem of the number three, which is obviously a number with quite the mystical pedigree. We have three days at Haute Desert, the castle of Bersalac. We have three hunting scenes, three seduction scenes, three kisses, three strokes at the Green Chapel. And the number five in this poem is of particular significance. Most famously, we have the description of the pentangle on Gawain's shield, which the poet goes to some length to describe. Long quote. Then they showed forth the shield that shone all red with the pentangle portrayed in purest gold. About his broad neck by the baldric he cast it, that was meet for the man and matched him well. And why the pentangle is proper to that peerless prince, I intend now to tell, though detain me it must. It is a sign by Solomon sagely devised to be a token of truth by its title of old. For it is a figure formed of five points, and each line is linked and locked with the next for ever and ever, and hence it is called in all England, as I hear, the endless knot. And well may he wear it on his worthy arms, for ever faithful fivefold in fivefold fashion was Gowan in good works, as gold unalloyed, devoid of all villainy, with virtues adorned in sight. On shield and coat in view, he bore the emblem bright, and to his word most true, and in speech most courteous knight. And first he was faultless in his five senses, nor found ever to fail in his five fingers, and all his fealty was fixed upon the five wounds that Christ got on the cross, as the creed tells. And wherever this man in melee took part, His one thought was of this, past all things else, that all his force was founded on the five joys that the High Queen of Heaven had in her child. And therefore, as I find, he fittingly had on the inner part of his shield her image portrayed, that when his look on it lighted, he never lost heart. The fifth of the five fives followed by this night were beneficence boundless and brotherly love and pure mind and manners that none might impeach, and compassion most precious. These peerless five were forged and made fast in him, foremost of men. Now all these five fives were confirmed in this night, and each linked in other that end there was none, and fixed to five points whose force never failed, nor assembled all on a side, nor asunder either, nor anywhere at an end, but whole and entire. However the pattern proceeded or played out its course, and so, on his shining shield, shaped was the knot, royally in red gold against red ghouls, that is the peerless pentangle, prized of old in lore. 
Now armed is Gowan gay, and bears his lance before, and soberly said good day, he thought forevermore. So, a shield with a five-pointed star stands for five symbolic and virtuous clusters. The five senses, the five fingers, the five wounds of Christ, the five joys of Mary, the five virtues. That's 25. Additionally, the Gowan poet spends 50 lines describing the fives of the pentangle. And the whole poem is a multiple of five, the number of lines in the poem, multiple of five. So the numerology is cool. You probably also notice that the poem begins and ends with an allusion to the Trojan War, so there's a pleasing symmetry there. Maybe you also noticed that the entire poem is obsessed with ideas about technique, the detailed descriptions of armor, clothing, needlework, and cookery. The middle of the poem parallels each seduction scene with a corresponding hunting scene, a classic combination, like bangers and mash, Every element in the construction of the poem is intricately and deftly intertwined with every other element. It is, like the pentangle itself, an endless knot. And then it's all tied up with a girdle, the symbol that binds the text together. That's rather craftily done, Sir Poet. Furthermore, I think the elegant symmetry of the form cleverly contrasts the ambiguity of the content. Now, we get a number of opposing pairs in this poem. We've got the natural versus the social or the civil. We've got the pagan and the Christian, the matriarchal and the patriarchal. Uh, The first contrast, of course, the very civilizational quality of Arthur's court, right? Dances and tournaments and feasting. And all this occurs during the Christmas holidays, which extended well beyond our current celebrations and New Year's. So one can certainly make the argument that these Christian feasts are impositions upon earlier pagan festivals around the solstice. So there's already a bit of tension. Now into this court rides the Green Knight, whom many scholars argue is an ancient fertility symbol or a version of the wild man archetype or some other personification of a perhaps pantheistic nature. The fact that he survives a beheading does point to the regenerative powers of nature that we've seen in Chaucer's prologue or the Cuckoo Song. And let's talk about that beheading game, shall we? The Gowan poet is definitely borrowing an old folklore motif here. That's pretty straightforward. You can cut off my head if I can cut off your head. It probably originates in Irish, and in particular Ulster Irish mythology, And maybe a metaphorical rendering of a pagan midwinter ritual, you know, killing off the old year so that the new year can begin. Later, it makes its way into French, German, and English, in that order, narratives. Here, it's usually seen as a coming-of-age motif, you know, a young fellow winning his spurs. And it's usually young fellows who are the protagonists of these kinds of tales. And, And while we call it the beheading game in Gowan and the Green Knight too. It does have some noticeable differences from its antecedents. One, the Green Knight never mentions beheading. He doesn't really even mention violence. He just says they must strike Strike one one stroke stroke for another. Conceivably, a man could merely flick the Green Knight's forehead or poke him in the chest, snap him with a wet towel. 
The Green Knight may simply be proposing a bit of holiday fun, for all they know, and not a life-and-death mystical contest. Actually, it's Arthur who grabs the Green Knight's axe, which the knight says is to be the prize, and it's Arthur who assumes that it's the means of the contest. He's the one who makes it violent. And then Gawain stands up and offers to take his uncle's place. Quote, I am the weakest, well I know, and of wit the feeblest, and the loss of my life would be least of any. That I have you for uncle is my only praise. All right. I have to admit that I find Gowan kind of tiresome here. Clearly this speech is mere politesse, false modesty. I am the lowliest, most humble, most stupid knight. Come on. In this tale, Gowan is well-established as the champion of the court, so this mock humility is a bit nauseating. He's come of age, he doesn't have to win his spurs. But this is a chivalric romance, and there are protocols. But I suspect that having to boast about your humility is a bit of a cod. Other folklore motifs evident here are the temptation story and the exchange of gifts. These introduce the real heart of the poem, I think. For here is where Gowan, and by extension, European ideals of chivalry, face their internal moral contradictions. The temptation story involves a woman trying to seduce a man who cannot acquiesce because of his moral obligations. Gowan, upon his arrival at Haute Desert, binds himself to both lord and lady. Quote, Straightway he asks to be received as their servant if they so desire. He's pledged loyalty and service to them both, and these competing obligations certainly complicate matters. Gowan cannot sleep with Bursalac's lady because he is bound by the laws of Christian chastity and because to do so would violate his bond to Bursalac as his guest. But, as this is a medieval romance, Gawain also has an obligation to the lady to preserve her dignity and honor, not to mention fulfill her wishes. So Gawain is stuck between a rock and a hard-on. The exchange of gifts puts that moral rectitude to the test. Gawain has obligated himself to turn over all that he wins during the day to Bursalac, who will, in turn, turn over his quarry in the hunt. Now, uh... If Gowan had indeed slept with the lady, I think Bursalak would have had rather a surprising welcome home from Gowan. So, yes, there are some humorous and homoerotic implications in this rendering of the game. Now, I've already mentioned that hunting and seduction are frequently used as mirrors of each other by writers. The old Thanatos and Eros, sex and death. But the Gowan poet cleverly juxtaposes these scenes. In the first scene, Bursalac hunts a deer while his lady offers herself to Gowan. Interestingly, the word for deer meat, venison, shares a root with the word venereal, as in, you know, having to do with sex. The Roman goddess Venus, the goddess of love. So that's pretty interesting. The second scene in which Bursalac hunts a ferocious boar, easily the most dangerous animal to hunt at the time. Uh, Really, like special spears and techniques were required to bring down this really aggressive beast. The poet writes, quote, The best of all boars broke from his cover, for of tough, bronze boars he was biggest by far. 
Bersalak wants, quote, his bloodthirsty heart to quell. Here, I think the boar is a cipher for Gowan, whom the lady describes as, quote, stout enough to constrain with strength any who would seek to constrain him. So Gowan is like the strong boar, and he needs to be taken down a peg. Arthur's knights have quite forgotten genuine humility and only perform it, so their swollen hearts need to be quelled. You get the picture. And the final scene is the hunting of the fox, famous both for its bushy tail and its proverbial slyness. Renard, the French call him. This parallels the seduction scene in which the lady offers Gowan the girdle, with which he will deceive both Bersalak in the exchange and the Green Knight in the beheading game. Yes, I know they're the same guy, but you get what I'm after. So all this adds up to the Gowan poet's critique of chivalry. And it's a quite ambiguous critique, I think. The poet is evidently devoutly Christian, but seems to posit a pagan view of nature that supersedes the will of Christian civilization and institutions. The Green Knight's not an emblem of like post-Edenic fallen nature, but rather of a nature that persists despite the attempts of humans to control it, to game it with their ingenuity or their rituals. And a chivalry that values honor above life? Seriously, who would choose to participate in a beheading game? That must be fundamentally unnatural, fundamentally opposed to a divinely ordered natural world. Maybe Gowan's vaunted chastity is another complication or foil for natural fertility? I don't know. He certainly is humorously awkward in the seduction scenes, and rather prissy. He reminds me of Benjamin Braddock with Mrs. Robinson in The Graduate. Are you trying to seduce me, Mrs. Robinson? She's firmly in control, as is the Lady of Haute Desert and Morgan Le Fay. The, The poem is a specifically feminine critique of masculine codes of honor. The Lady shrewdly tempts Gowan because she knows the conventions of romance and courtly love, but she mocks those conventions because... They're sexually, naturally aberrant. The Gowan poet gives a sinuous, elegant work that is at least the equal in its sophistication as any in medieval England, Chaucer included. Its deft use of language and rhythm, its masterly woven structural symmetries, its numerological intricacies combine to valorize courtly virtues as well as to warn of necessary correctives. And as the 14th century gives way to the 15th, such warnings prove prescient as chivalry and courtly love become mere theater, setting the stage for the last of the great medieval renderings of Arthur and his knights, Sir Thomas Mallory's Le Morte d'Arthur. But that tale, friend listener, is for another day. Thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to write a positive review on your favorite podcatcher so that others can hear about it. If you've any questions or suggestions or you just want to say hello, email me at classicenglishliterature, all one word, at gmail.com. And you can also check us out on the InstaTwit book. A special thanks to listeners Daisy and Shabnam for your very kind words. I truly appreciate your loveliness. I'd like to keep this podcast ad-free. 
because ads are annoying and because, you know, smash capitalism. I was never a really convincing radical. If you'd like to help offset the costs of putting on this show, you can offer a one-time donation by clicking the support the show button, or I've added a monthly subscription option if you'd like to give a couple or three dollars a month on a continuing basis. Now, just now, I don't have an incentive for subscription giving. I'd like to offer members-only episodes or other exclusive content, but I teach full-time, and that places rather stringent demands on a schedule, so I don't want to make promises to you guys that I can't keep. But I would appreciate anything you can give to help grow the show. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time and attention. Till next time, good luck, everybody. Good luck, everybody.